Good morning. Uh, as our catechism uh, question and answer instructed us this morning, how should we attend to God's Word so that it strengthens our faith and so that it um, is taken up into our lives? It told us that we're to do so with uh, diligence and preparation and prayer. And since we've already prayed, um, in that spirit of diligence, I thought it'd be good to reread our passage. It's short. It comes from John 13. Uh, if you want to grab a Bible or pull up a phone app, uh, I'll be reading from verses 31 through 35. And this is a, a small passage of Scripture that's found between um, two predictions. A prediction of Judas betraying Jesus and then the prediction that Peter will deny him. And so th- those two um, predictions actually give context for what Jesus is about to say here. It says, When he had gone out, That is when Judas had gone out. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Many years uh, uh, before The Passion of the Christ, you remember that film? Um, Many years before that was released, which I think came out about 15 years ago, there was a much less known film about Jesus, which was produced about 40 years ago, simply called the Jesus film. I say it was much less known because uh, the Jesus film didn't even gross enough to pay for its production costs of only $6 million. In contrast, The Passion of the Christ, which had a budget of about $30 million, grossed over $600 million. And yet the claim to fame for the Jesus film is that uh, through a funding partnership of Campus Crusade for Christ, also known as Crew now, Uh, It's been translated into over 1,600 known languages. It's been translated into more uh, languages than any other film in history. And though this may be a somewhat dubious claim, uh, there are those defenders of the film who say that it's been viewed by over 3 billion people worldwide. Uh, I'm not actually one of those people who has seen the film. Uh, I hope this is not a dubious... uh, Account. Truth be told, I couldn't find any record of it on the internet this week, so uh, maybe that means it just can't be true if it's not on the internet. Um, but I was able to confirm it with my father, who uh, worked in missions for many years. He had heard this story independently from me and, and heard it, remembered it the same. But many years ago, I heard an account regarding the showing of this film to an unreached people group, um, that is, to a, a group who had never really... Um, seen the scripture translated into their mother tongue or, or who by all accounts had never heard the gospel proclaimed to them. And so at this showing, uh, when the film reached the crucifixion scene, the people who were watching it began to cheer. They began to celebrate. And this was, of course, very confusing and very disturbing uh, to those who were showing the film, who were showing it, of course, for evangelistic purposes. And when they investigated why the people were celebrating, they realized that it was because they believed that Judas was the hero of the story. 
Um, and they believed he was the hero because he had defeated Jesus. You see, apparently in their culture, um, conquering your enemy, especially through an act of treachery or deception, was seen as a, a, a value. It was, in fact, how they sought to conquer their own enemies. Now, I don't know what you think of that account. Um, maybe it offends our sensibilities a bit to think that any culture devoid of the gospel could you know, be so quote-unquote backward. Uh, or maybe you just think, hey, I don't really believe it's true. Like I said, I, I must admit, I, it's hard to verify whether it's fact or urban legend or some combination of the two. But regardless of whether it's true, my point is that it begs the question, I think it begs the question, um, who won? Was Jesus just a victim? Was he a pathetic loser? Uh, or was he a glorious hero? Now, I know that posing that question to a room full of believers, to a room full of people who put their faith in Christ is a bit ab absurd. It's strange, right? Uh, or maybe you're even wondering why I'm focusing on Judas when Jesus is really focused here on love. Um, our passage this morning was about loving one another, right? But I think the context of betrayal is important because the betrayal of Judas is the context for this commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Our, re our reading began this morning by saying, when he, that is Judas, went out to betray Jesus, Jesus then said, now is the Son of Man glorified. It's a winning word. That's a champion word. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and then he proceeds to give them the new command to love one another. Judas leaves to betray Jesus, which will lead to his crucifixion, and Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now this is, uh, this is significant because, first of all, that term, Son of Man, is a, it's a title that really his disciples and any good Jew of that day would have known from the book of Daniel. It was a familiar title for them, um, a prophecy that they were hanging their hopes upon. It's a glorious term used to describe a majestic figure from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So again, with that understanding of the Son of Man terminology, and in the context of knowing that He was just about to be betrayed, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Huh? <laughs> it's a bit confusing. What, is, what does that mean? That He's going to be glorified. Well, if you will, permit me to table that question for a minute. I'll come back to it. But first, let's take a moment to consider... I want us to consider the possible motivations of Judas in betraying Jesus. Um, I recognize that this could be somewhat speculative on my part, and uh, that's always a bit dangerous, but I do want to pose the question this morning, why did Judas betray Jesus? Now, of course, there is the, um, the spiritual and more ultimate answer, right? Our passage last week said that when Jesus fed Judas from his hand, when he gave him that 
a morsel of bread that he had dipped into the cup that Satan then entered into Judas. And I think Chuck had promised that I would delve deep into that, that mystery. Well, I'm not going to do that. Um, it is a bit of a mystery, right? But we never uh, speak of the work of Satan apart from the responsibility of man. Working a little bit, little bit uh, earlier in the chapter, we read that Judas had contemplated this. And yet it was also the devil who had given him the idea to betray Jesus. But then, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, why did he do what he did? Why did he betray Jesus? How is that rational? How is that a logical act on his part? I want to suggest to you that I I believe that Judas lost faith in Jesus. And he turned on him because he lost faith in him. It, It... It is true that he was probably a false disciple from the beginning. Uh, He was a thief, for instance, John uh, tells us. But there was a reason that he was following Jesus in the first place, and I don't believe it was just so he could betray him all along. You see, Judas had a concept of glory that I think was perfectly reasonable by earthly standards. Judas followed Jesus because he wanted Jesus to ascend to power. He wanted Jesus to become king, and well, if Jesus became king, he was his treasurer. That was a pretty good position to be in. Judas wanted to climb the ladder with Jesus. And things were, frankly, they were going really well lately. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He had uh, performed this very public miracle that caused a number of people to place their faith in him and to follow him. And there was this buzz in Jerusalem around Passover with the crowd saying, hey, do you think he's going to come to the feast? He was a real attraction. The Pharisees were upset by this and they were saying amongst themselves, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him and follow him. And that, of course, was going to threaten their power structure. See, Jesus is growing more popular and powerful and more glorious by the day he raises Lazarus from the dead which increases this entourage, and then he rides into Jerusalem to a spectacle of Hosanna. Save us. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. See, they want to anoint Him as King. So this is the glory I believe that Judas is anticipating. It's so promising And yet there are other signs that uh, upset Judas. You see, for a while now, Jesus has been saying, hey, we're, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, this glorious figure, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and rejected and killed. And not just Judas, but Peter like, likewise are saying, whoa, this is not, this was not our picture of, this is not part of the plan. Even as we reach back into the last chapter, into John 12, we see Jesus saying already, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And He's saying that in the context of His impending death. Not just His resurrection, not just His ascension, but His death is a part of His glory. You remember the story? Some some Greeks came to Philip and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
And then he added, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it, be, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And for good measure, he adds, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And you listen to these words and you think, he must follow me. And there I, where I am, my servant will be also. And you think, where is he going to be? In the grave. Doesn't sound too promising. Judas was not down with this plan. Judas was about power and glory achieved through earthly, human, and even political means. You know, interestingly enough, Iscariot, it may indicate that Judas was considered a radical from the Sicari sect. Sicari means dagger in Latin. These were people who were willing to overthrow the foreign rule of Rome by wearing long, hidden daggers in their clothing looking for opportunistic moments to assassinate key political leaders. Judas may be a radical. It may also be that Iscariot simply indicates that Judas was from a town named Kirioth. Ish Kirioth means the man from Kirioth. But if you think it's a stretch to believe that Jesus could have such a radical among his circle of disciples, consider that another one of his disciples is named what? Simon the Zealot. Right? That too is a very political title. I think Judas could have been a political animal. He wanted glory and power. He wanted to ascend with Jesus. And meanwhile, Jesus is talking about descending into the earth. In fact, Jesus is repeatedly talking about his glorification as it relates to his death. Now, it's the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. I.e., it's time for me to die. You and I know as Christians that the glory of the Gospel is in the death of, of Christ, isn't it? We glory in the cross because in the death of Christ Jesus, God has fully dealt with our sins. He satisfied His righteous, holy wrath against sin through His provision, who, through the substitutionary, atoning death of His Son. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, right? not ascending, but when I'm lifted up in an act of crucifixion, indicating the kind of death He was going to die, I will draw all people to Myself. That is His glorification in drawing all people to Himself through the sacrificial death that He will give for us. It's a beautiful Gospel. And we should glory in the death of Christ. But friends, the principle that this teaches us as His followers, as His disciples, is that the way of the cross is the way to our glory as well. Paul offers us a trustworthy saying. He says, if we have died with Him, then we will also live with Him. If we endure, then we will also reign with Him. I believe that's, that's a big part of what's meant by union with Christ. We become one with Jesus. We die with Him. We live with Him. 
In another place, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave Himself up for me. I'm one with Christ. If we die with Him, we will also live with Him. But you know, conversely, if we deny Him, then He will deny us. It's a very stern warning. That's not to say that denying Christ as Peter once did, as we're going to see next week, that's not an unforgivable sin. We've read that Satan entered into Judas, right? Well, with regard to the way of the cross being the way to glory, Jesus once had to say to Peter as well, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Peter Peter wasn't that much different than Judas. Satan was at work. And at, at this very supper, knowing that Peter would deny him just as certainly as Judas would betray him, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded you. He's demanded you? Yeah, he's demanded you. Satan is an accuser and he accuses Peter before the Lord. He deserves condemnation, Lord. You should damn him for what he's done. But Jesus says, he's asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter. That when you've turned again, that is when you've repented, that you will strengthen your brothers. What a glorious gospel we believe, right? Jesus, our Savior, has not only died for us, but He is our advocate who intercedes for us even when we sin against Him. Peter learned the way of glory. He learned the way of glory. Jesus said to him, In John 21, at the end of this Gospel, He will say to him, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John says that Jesus said this to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. See, Peter would also glorify God in his death. According to church tradition, Peter too was crucified but upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to being crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. And after saying this to Peter, Jesus said to him, follow me. The way of the cross is the way to glory. Follow me. And we too must take up our cross, right? And follow Jesus. We lose our life in order to find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The way of the cross is the way to glory. When we're animated by this new principle, when we believe it, when we accept it as true, when we have faith in it, then, and I think only then, will we be empowered to embrace the new command that Jesus gives his disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. You know, upon first reading, um, uh, that doesn't sound all that new, does it? It doesn't sound all that radical. Loving one another probably doesn't strike us as particularly exceptional. In fact, even in the Jewish tradition, loving your neighbor was the expectation. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, in the law, the Lord speaks to Moses saying, Speak to the congregation of Israel and say to them, Love your neighbor as yourself. So what's so new about Christ's command? 
Well, when we go to the New Testament, um, when we look at Jesus establishing His law, when He, for instance, gives His Sermon on the Mount, and make no mistake, this is the law of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, He prefaces each command by repeatedly saying, you've heard that it's said. You've heard that it's said, right? What does that mean? What is He doing there? Where, where have they heard it said? Well, they've heard it said in the law of Moses. Given to them by God Himself through His servants. Again, Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, it's worth noting that the law of Moses never said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That apparently was a perverted teaching of the Pharisees who just loved to add their own commentary to the law. This can still be a problem in Judaism. It can be a problem in Christianity as well today if we go beyond what's written and rely too much on commentary of the law rather than the law itself. But here Jesus does something that's remarkably audacious. He says, you've heard that it's said, but what? But I say to you, and think about that. See what he's just done there? He's put himself on par. Actually, he's put himself over the law. Here's the law. You love your neighbor, says the law. Love one another. But I say to you, love your enemies, Jesus says, and pray for those who persecute you. The law of Christ is a heightened law. Remember, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he shows us the fullness of the law. Don't just love. Don't just love your neighbor. Don't just love one another. He says, a new commandment I give to you just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. It's new because it's heightened. We are to love one another just as Christ has loved us. And how has He loved us? He's loved us as a servant. Remember this chapter began with Him undressing down to the essentials, taking the form of a servant, and beginning to wash His disciples' feet. He's loved us with sacrificial law, love. He's, he's on His way to the cross. You see how this new command flows out of the new principle that the way of the cross is the way to glory? This chapter began with the words, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He knew that Judas was about to betray Him, right? He was not surprised by that. He wasn't caught off guard. And yet, John recounts that Jesus then rose and began to wash His disciples' feet. You think, do you think He washed Judas' feet? He most certainly did. That didn't make Judas clean. He was clear about that. But Jesus served His enemies. Jesus did not retaliate. He did not hate His enemies. The way of the cross is the way to glory. And the new commandment associated with the cross is to love each other just as Christ has loved us. That's a high calling. That application, of course, can only flow out of an apprehension of the gospel. We are only going to love one another if we have first experienced the profound love of God for us. We love because He first loved us. We love as a sacrificial servant. That's what's new. In another place, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? 
right? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Loving those who love you is not uncommon, right? Most cultures do that. But Jesus says, love your enemies and then you will find glorification. You will be sons of the Most High. For He's kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Therefore, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus gives us a new principle. The way of the cross is the way to glory. He gives us a new command. Just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And then Jesus tells us that this is also going to serve as a new testimony to the world. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know. Not just Christians, but all people will know that we are His disciples, that we are His followers. You know, here's one of the testimonies of an ancient who is unfortunately unknown to us. It's hard to know for certain whether they were a Christian or not. They probably were a Christian, but this is their testimony concerning the early church. It said, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They're normal. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. You know, pagans would throw their unwanted children in the garbage dump. And it was the early Christians who would rescue such children and raise them as their own, incorporate them into the body of Christ. He goes on to say, they have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, even though they're persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, yet restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in the very dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are, unpun- yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if they are quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. Wouldn't that be a tremendous testimony for the church today? That we would bear that kind of witness by the way we live our lives with one another and even in, inside of the world. You know, Tertullian, who was another early church father, he wrote in his apology, which is really a defense of the church. He said, it's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, see how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us how they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves would sooner kill. The church must be countercultural in this world. This week we have experienced so much hatred, right? 
those attempts to bomb enemies, the going in of a synagogue and shooting up people, such awful acts of hatred. But Christians should be people who die for one another, who follow the way of the cross as the way to glory. You know, lest we think that this is nothing more than the testimony of Christians flattering one another, the last pagan emperor of Rome, Julian the Apostate, he said the following. He said, these impious Galileans. Okay, so he didn't start out with flattery, right? These impious Galileans, as he called Christians, not only feed their own, but also ours. Welcoming them with their agape. What are we about to share, right? An agape feast. While pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. That should be the church today. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is our new commandment and our powerful testimony. And it's all based on the new principle that the way of the cross is the way to glory. You know, I, I started off with kind of a dubious account. This may also be apocryphal, but it's recorded that the dying words of Julian the Apostate were, Visisti Galilei. You have conquered Galilean. You win. It's true. The way of the cross is the way to glory. Love does win. If we die with Him, we'll also live with Him. May God be gracious to us and empower us to love one another as He has loved us. Let's pray together.